I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, a new MGM Plus documentary miniseries provides a fresh and unique look at the cultural phenomena that has come to be known as the Amityville Horror. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Ugh, another Amityville media project? There's been so many documentaries, so many movies, so many books. The Amityville has become something of a joke over the years, as evidenced by the fact that there's now direct-to-video and streaming movies like Amityville Cop, Amityville Moon, Amityville in Space, and my personal favorite, Amityville Vibrator. Yes, that is a real movie. But let me tell you, Amityville, an origin story, provides something completely different and surprisingly thoughtful. It's an examination, an in-depth exploration of the Amityville horror as a cultural phenomena from the brutal murders that occurred at the infamous house on 112 Ocean Avenue to the alleged haunting of the Lutz family and the many movies, books, and media that the Amityville Horror has inspired since then. It's not a documentary series that retreads the old, worn-out question, was Amityville real or a hoax, but rather an attempt to understand why Amityville has become seared into our collective pop culture consciousness. It's also a rare case of a documentary series that doesn't seek to answer every question and, in fact, raises even more questions by the end. It's a series that invites the viewer 
to ponder the meaning of the Amityville saga and its continued impact on our culture. Joining us to discuss all of this and much more is Jack Riccobono, director of Amityville, an origin story. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with our guest. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with, uh, filmmaker Jack Riccobono, the man behind the documentary miniseries now on MGM Plus, Amityville, an origin story. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, JG. So, Jack, there's a lot to unpack uh, when talking about this new miniseries. And, of course, uh, just Amityville has become such a phenomena. And I, I want to delve into that. But what's interesting to me is this docuseries comes out. And what's interesting to me about Amityville is I, I think over the years, I want to be careful how I, how I word this, but, you know, at the end of your series, uh, you show some of the new movies that have come out in recent years with regards to Amityville. And I've seen everything from Amityville Cop to Amityville Werewolf, right? I think it was called Amityville Moon to even Amityville Vibrator. Uh, in a weird way, Amityville has become something of a joke now. Uh, and your docuseries, in a way, I think, uh, brings back the terror of it and the horror of it. Uh, what do you think about where the sort of Amityville horror phenomena is now compared to when it began and, and maybe you could talk about why you wanted to take a serious look at it uh, during a time when like I said there there's sort of become a you know it's sort of become a humorous thing in some ways for a, a lot of people with these you know spin-off type movies yeah absolutely I mean I would say you know it's it's jumped the shark <laughs> long ago and um and kind of is unique i think in just the number of spin-offs and adaptations and i mean there's a reason for that which is that the story is in the public domain because it was based on a true story that was widely reported both the murders of the defeos but then also the hauntings that the lutzes experienced and then amityville is a town name so you can't copyright it you can't trademark it and so, there, you know, there's a sort of legal IP reason for why there are so many crazy spinoffs, which is that you can't control this franchise. Now, we talked to a, an amazing uh, academic uh, filmmaker, Amityville expert, who actually didn't make it into this series named Brian Norton, who is writing a book about all the different Amityville movies that have come out. And, you know, Brian, it really cracked me up because he referred to some of the movies as canon, which are, you know, the movies that are theatrically released and or that stem from books that are directly tied back in some way to the Lutzes or the original Amityville horror story. So there's lots of ways of looking at this, but there has been this cottage industry of spinoffs and kind of DIY films that continue to this day, Amityville in space, you know, uh, Amityville. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it's sort of become like, 
not, not to interrupt you, but it's sort of become like an in-joke by now where I think so many kids have seen like Amityville insert a crazy idea here uh, that, you know, I mean, like, like, you, like I said, there's an Amityville vibrator movie. So, I mean, it, it's sort of become this like in-joke now of, oh, what's going to be the next like weird direct-to-video Amityville movie? Yeah, which I mean, I think is fun, and I, honestly, it's part of the the love of that that exists out there in the in the fandom. You know, for for this story, it's kind of a unique Amityverse that we we use that to describe the the crazy fandom culture that's out there online. There's actually different layers to that fandom. Like, there's a a paranormal sort of chapter of fans right that are looking at investigating the different angles for why things happened and tying them to paranormal investigation and then there's a kind of cinephile b-movie fandom i mean tarantino you know called amityville to the possession it was it made his list of the 50 best sequels of all time and it was fittingly 50 out of 50. So it was the last movie on his list. But I think that that's the kind of cult, you know, the movie cult kind of status that it has. Um, and it's fun. And honestly, the internet gave this whole thing like a second life because between social media and, and before that, you know, chat rooms and websites and forums where people would just get together and debate the different elements of the story, come up with new theories and it just kind of kept going on and on and on and kept feeding itself. So then uh, to my original question, I, I guess what Amityville and Origins story does is uh, it goes back to basics. And I think it tells a sort of chilling story of both the murders and the alleged haunting. Uh, it, it In a lot of ways, it raises more questions than I think answers at times. And I think that's intentional. And also, I think the right approach to take to this uh, but I guess, why did you want to take that back to basics approach, uh, you know, in a time where, like I said, it's almost become a comedy thing in some ways? Yeah, well, I mean, I um, so I was approached to to join this project after the network had bought it. So I didn't go through the development or or selling phases of it. So I was sort of coming into it cold. You know, I knew something about Amityville, but there's been. 9 million projects made about this, right? So, I mean, the challenge out of the gate, right, is people have heard something about it. They know a little bit, this or that. But, you know, what's what's interesting about it? You know, what could we do that would feel different? And I think the thing that had never really been done is a more elevated look at the origins of the story, hence the name, to really go back and place the story in its cultural moment in the 1970s, because you have all of these strange, dark undercurrents of that era that really kind of coalesced to allow for the original movie to take off. And, you know, all the spinoffs have kind of clouded the fact that the original Amityville Horror in 1979 made over $80 million. It was a cultural phenomenon when it came out. And I was really, going to say real quick, it was one of the most successful independent movies. I mean, it was, uh, people forget it was made by American International Pictures, who were not, you know, considered like uh, one of the big studios. They were kind of like the uh, second tier sort of B-movie studio. But that was just a huge hit that eclipsed, I think, most of the films that that company did. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's the biggest release that they had. 
And, um, and you know, part of what we do in the series is try to go back and, and look at why did it have that success? Because, I mean, you know, I love movies. I love horror movies. You can appreciate Amityville horror as a as a, in, in its time kind of thing. It didn't age that well. You know, we're, it's not The Shining. It's not like it's not like the greatest horror movie of all time by any means. But in terms of cultural impact and sort of redefining the haunted house for a whole new generation of people, it really has had this strange staying power that continues to this day. And of course, has been fed by things like the Ryan Reynolds remake in 2005, which also kind of reintroduced it to a new generation. But for me, I mean, the thing that I found most interesting, I think, was that it was really the first time where you have this based on a true story horror film where the people, the Lutzes, were sitting on the couch next to James Brolin, who played George Lutz in the movie, on Good Morning America on the day before the movie comes out and promoting the movie in the context of it being a true story. And now that probably seems, you know, somewhat ordinary or, you know, people have seen that. But when that happened in in 79, it really was the first time that that's that that sort of like coming together of this this narrative interpretation with a true story in real time. It was the first time that had happened. And that that really interested me. So backing up a little, uh, in case anyone's been living under a rock, the Amityville horror was uh, essentially the story of George and Kathy Lutz and their children. They stay in this house for about, I think, 28 days. And then they leave. That's where we get the famous tagline for the movie. And the tagline is, for God's sakes, get out of the house. Uh, But then before that, there's these murders uh, that take place in the house. And what's really interesting about your docuseries is that on one hand, you're tackling the cinephile aspect. You're interviewing people like John Carpenter. And then you're also dealing with like a true crime story. And then you're dealing with the haunting and the question of whether it's real or not. So I guess, why do you think all of this coalesced to turn Amityville into a phenomena? Because you sort of get into the cultural background. You know, there's a whole boom over occultism. Uh, You even get into things like transcendental meditation. How does this sort of cultural moment play into the Amityville horror phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, that's really what what interested me is this crossover of genres, as you say, because we do have this true crime element and the paranormal mixing with this, this movie culture. And it really did all play a role. I think, I mean, the exorcist comes out in 1973 and is just, you know, a huge, tremendous cultural sensation. I mean, many times more than the impact Amityville had, you know, people were lining up around the block to see that movie and and you know on both sides whether they were uh, christian believers or non-believers atheists like everybody went to see the exorcist and it kind of popularized this idea of possession and also of course of exorcism and so that's in 73 the defeo murders happen in 1974 and the lutzes move into the house in 1975 And so this idea of demonic possession plays a role in how people see Ronnie DeFeo, 
who was accused and convicted of murdering his whole family in 1974 in that same house. And so, you know, when he first defended himself, uh, he used the insanity defense and he said on the stand that, that he had heard voices telling him to do it. And this was a couple of years, of course, after the Manson murders. So, but still very much in a time period where mass murder was highly unusual, especially in a suburban, wealthy enclave like Amityville. So, you know, the early 70s were something that I wanted to really uh, look at and, and try to draw some of these lines. And I think you see a kind of lack of uh, trust in institutions. You know, you have Nixon resigning, you're dealing with the end of the Vietnam War, all of these veterans coming back really disillusioned, a lot of them addicted to drugs, and um, and and obviously very, uh, you know, both the, the big part of the vets, but also, of course, a lot of the American population was, was very distrustful of the American government. And it, it's this sort of backlash happening to the sort of free wheeling, free love, you know, late 60s experimentation period. So so you have this kind of dark energy running through the early 70s and people are are very open to other belief systems, you know, which is why I think you see this rise in interest in uh, paranormal investigation and also the occult. And of course, we look at the connection between George Lutz, the stepfather in the Lutz family, and Raymond Buckland, who uh, was, you know, a guy who basically popularized Wicca in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And so you start to see, you know, kind of all of this, these different influences swirling around the story. And, and with the Lutzes, you know, I think they they moved into this house like just just a couple weeks after Ronnie DeFeo was convicted of these murders and they got a, a deal on the house. And I think, you know, they thought that they could kind of handle that, but I think there's a certainly a psychic weight to living in a murder house and, you know, by their own admission that definitely played some kind of role in the experience they had in that house. And then when they fled in January of 76, you know, just a couple weeks later, they invited the Warrens, this, you know, very famous paranormal investigation couple. They're now the basis of the Conjuring movie series. They invited the Warrens to come in and do a seance to kind of validate what they thought happened to them in the house. And they had a news crew follow it. And we have some of that footage, you know, in the series. And Lorraine Warren said, you know, this is the closest to hell I ever want to get. And so she very much validated it just, to, you know, that was March 6th of 1976. And that kind of, you know, again, shot their story a bit like out of a cannon, you know, from there, it just really started to snowball where they decided to, to do a book about it. The book became this huge bestseller in 1977 and led directly to the movie that came out in 79. So, um, so yeah, we try to kind of tease apart all of these different influences to understand why people were so fascinated by the story. I mean, a big part of it, too, I think, is the murders. You know, they're, the real murders, the tragedy of the DeFeo family is kind of like the dark energy that I think is 
the engine in a lot of ways for the story because it is so horrifying. And the idea yeah, that it's, this- it's like it's probably one of the most famous cases of, um, you know, it's, it's a family annihilation case, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I mean, that's a term that, the, you know, what the um, the clinical psychologist we, we interviewed in the film uses family annihilation. I actually hadn't heard that term before, but it's really it's it's very chilling. And um, and, you know, I think that people obviously struggle to understand what could possibly be the motivation for someone to kill their entire family, you know, their parents, but also his siblings as young as nine years old. Um, well, it's also it's a- so strange not to interrupt you because it's, I mean, he did it like execution style. They're lying on their stomach while they're sleeping. He goes throughout the whole house and, you know, shoots them. Um, and it is, it, it, it does sound weird when you first say that because it's like, well, no one woke up. Um, so there's also all these like lingering questions, I guess, that people yeah. have about the murders. Absolutely. Yeah. No one woke up. No one heard the gunshots, including the neighbors and yeah, the way that they were found in the beds. It's, it's, it's eerie and it doesn't really add up. And, you know, that's, I mean, what we tried to do with the series is really kind of give each episode its own flavor, if you will. So the first episode is almost like a horror docutainment where we really kind of want you to feel the Lutzes and the, the haunting story that they tell and really kind of go through those 28 days with them to kind of orient you into the story. And we, you know, we did our own original photography for that. And then we also used a lot of the 1979 film in a, in a kind of targeted way. Um, and then in episode two, we really pivot backwards to the DeFeo murders uh, because that's also kind of what the Lutzes were trying to do. They were trying to understand what happened to them. And they actually went to Ronnie DeFeo's attorney to try to understand, oh, did anything happen in that house when the DeFeos were living there aside from the mass murder? Um, So, you know, we take this kind of hard boiled, you know, true crime approach in episode two to the crime and, and trying to understand you know, the, these strange elements of it. And, and the fact of the matter is that the police, they basically felt like they got their man with Ronnie pretty quickly. And that kind of shut down their investigation. They didn't quite investigate certain leads as far as they probably could have or should have. And so certain questions that maybe could have been answered back then really you know, there there was no way to find the answers. And I think, you know, that's what left the door open then for paranormal explanations. And we really showcase Hans Holzer, who is, you know, this famed ghost hunter. He popularized ghost hunting and paranormal investigation in the 60s and 70s. He was this Austrian-born journalist who then kind of pivoted into the paranormal field but he's, you know, he's really interesting because he is, again, a, a very, very specific product of his time where he... Spirit you know, photography, of, right? Spirit photography. Yeah, there was this big, big thing around um, equipment and evidence, you know, recording things and, you know, setting up cameras, audio recordings, you know, trying to kind of capture evidence of of, pheno- of strange phenomena and and study it in a sort of quasi 
scientific way. And, um, and so he, um, you know, he was one of the people that was really at the forefront of that. And what's, you know, you see this sort of divisions within the paranormal field, because he actually looked down on the Warrens, you know, the Warrens were demonologists, they came from a Catholic Christian construct. Right. right? Whereas Hans Holzer would say, uh, I'm a parapsychologist, you know, Uh, he he was like, sort of like, um, he wanted to be taken seriously as a science. Yes, yes. He wanted to, to, to say that he had a more scientific approach to these things and he didn't believe in in heaven and hell and that those were sort of made up constructs but he was dealing with with evidence that he was able to collect and he is the one that actually popularized the idea that ronnie was possessed and he claimed to have come across information that the house had been built on an indian burial ground now that that element was also in the original Amityville horror book from 1977 and then the film and it's the first film where this idea of the Indian burial ground the first horror film um that uses that trope uh which becomes quite popular you know especially into the 80s and in a lot of other films um so he he Hans went as far as to describe Ronnie as a victim because he had been possessed by a Native American chief whose remains had been disturbed on the site. And uh, the anger of that Native American chief is what kind of entered Ronnie and caused him to kill his whole family. So um, pretty, pretty wild stuff. What's really interesting about your documentary, there, there's a lot that we've been talking about. Uh, like, for instance, we mentioned the whole connection between uh, George Lutz and Raymond Buckley and, and the sort of occult boom. At the same time, your movie isn't one of these agenda-driven movies. You know, like, I could see maybe an evangelical sort of preacher-type person saying, see, this is what happens when you get involved in the occult. Your docu-series doesn't do that. Your docu-series doesn't want to push the line oh, uh, Ronnie DeFeo was innocent. At the same time, you do give voice to people who think, no, there, there was something else going on there. It couldn't have just been Ronnie that did it. Uh, you know, also when looking at the haunting itself, you're not there to debunk it. You're not there to say it all happened exactly the way the Lutz has said. Uh, you know, you have a variety of different voices and it seems like, you know, you're not really pushing an agenda with this docuseries. I think some people maybe interested to know why you took that approach uh, because it's a very unique approach to something like the Amityville horror, because most documentaries on this thing, it's either been, was it real or a hoax? Why didn't you take that approach? Well, I mean, I kind of feel like that it's that question is almost besides the point, you know, I mean, we're talking about something that happened almost 50 years ago and it's it's a cultural phenomenon, you know, and that's really how I wanted to look at the landscape and also root everything in the the series from the perspective of of the people who were as close to it as as we could find, you know. And I am I am proud of the fact that we were able to uh, you know get access to people who had never been interviewed before. Um, many of them, you know, who witnessed key events uh, firsthand. But that being said, 
it's 50 years ago, you know, and we all know that that the mind sort of plays tricks on you with your with your memory. And and so I think at the end of the day, I mean, the series is really kind of about the nature of truth and, and true stories and how we interact with stories and, and what we want to take from them ourselves. You know, I mean, I think that's really kind of at the end of the day, this is like a prism, you know, you, you can look at it and see these events from so many different angles. And depending on on you and your perspective on on the world, you're going to come out with a different conclusion. So I mean, I personally, you know, I respond to to films and series that that really let the audience make up their mind. You know, I don't like agenda driven projects. I like I like, again, projects that raise more questions than answers. And they let you know, they let you try to figure it out for yourself. So, I mean, and, you know, from an interview perspective, I mean, I'm always interested in what people say happened to them you know it's not it's not to for me to say no that didn't happen to you and i'm i'm open to the possibilities of of things that cannot be explained i mean you know you, you have to be in this world so i so so you know that that's kind of like the approach that i took and um and i'm glad that 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 seems to have come across that you were able to feel that yeah, I think it's an interesting approach uh, because, you know, it's almost like by the end of the series, you get the impression that, well, whether, you know, the Lutzes were haunted by ghosts and demons or not, you know, there is a real Amityville horror. There is a real haunting that has happened in the sense of, you know, haunting is like a metaphor. Uh, so what I mean by that is this haunts the culture. It haunts the people who lived in Amityville and had to deal with, you know, you know, people just visiting that house all the time. I'm sure people still visit that house. It haunts the people who knew the DeFeo family. Uh, in a way, there is a very real haunting that happened even beyond this idea of what happened to the Lutzes. Yeah, and I think, you know, and, and, the, and the Lutz family, I mean, at the end of the day, this is really a story about two families, you know, and, and a kind of tragedy that happened to both of them because, the Amityville horror really destroyed the Lutz family also. And so we try to look at the human toll of this story and, and also really humanize the DeFeos as victims because, you know, their story had been twisted over the years in so many different directions by these film adaptations. So, you know, it was important to us to kind of reground the story a little bit and understanding that the true horror of that mass murder but yeah i agree with you i mean there's lots of ways to sort of read um the tentacles of the story and um and you know we did try to to break some new ground with it too in episode four i don't want to give away any spoilers but you know our our lens a little bit for episode four is almost investigative journalism or documentary we were able to uncover documents about George Lutz's past that have never been released publicly before. And, you know, again, depending on your orientation and how you want to read that material, that might provide some kind of answer um, for some for some viewers, but it's certainly part of the the wider kind of way of of understanding the you know the story and the different aspects of it. 
I actually wanted to ask you about that last episode without giving it away too much. So I think that episode ultimately maybe draws some parallels between Ronnie DeFeo on one hand and then the patriarch of the Lutz family, George Lutz, on the other hand. Uh, at the same time, I don't think any of the episodes attempt to say, well, this is just the final word on this subject. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I definitely felt like uh, the purpose of the series was really to examine all elements of this story in an elevated way and really try to kind of put them in conversation with each other. Um, but I, to, to for me, like, I, I, I was very suspect that we were going to have some smoking gun reveal, you know, like a a DNA test or something like that, that was going to suddenly answer all the questions. And I feel like um, we have this British horror academic, uh, John Greenaway, who we interview um, and he appears in episodes, I think three and four. And he talks about how um, it's, it's less about what's true about the story than what people wanted to believe about it. And I still think that that's true to this day. And it's true of a lot of things. I mean, it's true of, of a lot of the ways that people engage in their in their religious faith. You know, you, you take you take what you need from certain stories and belief systems. And I think Amityville is the same way. One thing that I'm really glad that you did is I didn't think initially that you were going to cover the movie Amityville to the possession at all. Because I'm watching the second episode and you're sort of doing the. I don't want to say the identity discovery thing, but like you're not showing any clips from Amityville 2 while you're covering uh, the murders. And I do think that was like a, a good choice on your part, but you do eventually cover uh, Amityville 2, The Possession. And to me, that's a very interesting movie. I would actually say that I like it better than the original film. Uh, you me know, too. it has Burt Young from Rocky. Uh, it's a very interesting movie. And in a way, it's almost like a family melodrama where it's, it's about family disintegration. Uh, and that's a theme that also pops up, I think, in both the story of the Lutzes that you tell in the Doggy series and also, of course, the DeFeo family. So can you talk about the issue of, like, you know, family dysfunction, family disintegration, and how it sort of weaves throughout your series? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the big uh, elements of, of this story is really, again, about two families and the things that happen behind closed doors. And, you know, that was something that really fascinated me in some of the media interviews that the Lutzes did, especially with Kathy Lutz, where uh, she would allude to kind of certain things that happen behind closed doors. And if we don't talk about them, we'll never understand them. And And to me, that always came across as suggesting potentially, you know, personal, you know, interpersonal issues uh, within the family, secrets within the family, whether it was, you know, verbal or psychological or physical abuse, you know, something, something happening behind closed doors. And, and, and that really reflects a lot in what I think is incredible about the horror genre, you know, that it can deal with real fears and anxieties and kind of express them in an imaginative way. And so that, you know, that's part of what I felt was at play. And with the DeFeos, you know, part of what's fascinating about them 
is um, again the dysfunction within that family, which we we tried to uncover through people that that knew them, and um, there was a lot of of violence and and uh, and kind and I guess some um, volatile aspects to that family where Ronnie had even put a gun on his father once before and tried to pull the trigger and the gun jammed. And when that happened, his father, Ron Sr., got very religious. So they were already a Catholic family, but that experience where he kind of cheated death um, made him even more devout. And um, and this was, again, just in the, um, in the months leading up to the, the final murders. And so there was something about... Um, the the religiosity within their family and the dysfunction that um, was picked up on also by Hans Holzer and other paranormal investigators and part of their explanation for why other owners of the house have haven't been haunted is because it's a, it's about this very particular alchemy of of a particular person and family and this this dark energy that they bring into the house mixed with the dark forces of the house and that's what brings out the haunting so you know his his theory was that it could happen again if the if the right person kind of moves into the house again what what's interesting to me is uh, th- there's a lot to unpack there with what you just said about the defeo family I had always thought I recently watched Amityville to the possession again. And I had always thought the stuff with like Burt Young and, you know, uh, how the whole family seems to be corrupted by the house. There's artistic license taken there uh, so much so that you think, oh, all of this must just be artistic license, you know, that because they have I mean, there's a whole subplot involving Ronnie DeFeo Jr. And, you know, the sister having like an incest thing going on in that movie. So I always assumed the gun story with, with uh, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. holding the gun up to his dad. I always thought, oh, th- that's just something they made up. But apparently it's not. Um, that's something I learned from your series. So there's so much going on with the way we tell these stories, what is and isn't accurate. And, and also there's a lot of mysteries that remain. Uh, so you're talking about, you know, uh, the sort of secrets that go on behind the scenes with the DeFeo family, there's always that question of, well, you know, uh, was it like a mob hit? You know, because, oh, that 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 Ronnie DeFeo Sr., I think he was involved with the mob. Uh, so it seems like there's always this issue of uh, lingering secrets that run throughout your docuseries. And, you know, it sounds like there were sort of dark secrets on the uh, Lutz's side of the family. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? And maybe also talk a little bit about uh, one of the interview subjects, uh, Christopher, I know he doesn't go by the name Lutz anymore, but um, Christopher. Bartino, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I want to circle back for one second because I for, I forgot that you had started with the question about Amityville to the possession. <laughs> so I, I want to address that a little bit too because, you know, in, in episode one, we used the 1979 film in this very kind of targeted way to sort of bring to life some of what the Lutzes say happened to them. And we did experiment with that a little bit in episode two with Amityville to the possession. But the the thing is that, you know, you're dealing with this this real mass tragedy of the whole family being killed. 
And so, you know, I just couldn't go there to use Amityville to the possession, which which is this very kind of outlandish B-movie, you know, adaptation of the DeFeo's lives. Um, it, it just didn't feel appropriate or genuine, you know, to to kind of channel that movie into the telling of of the real crime and the tragedy that happened. Um, so we we deal with that movie in episode four, where we're really looking at the long kind of legacy of Amityville. We break out of the seventies, and that movie comes out in eighty three, and you know, it's actually based on Hans Holzer's book that he wrote. So, you know, it's another kind of interesting combination of layers where Amityville to the Possession is based on his book. The Warrens also served as advisors to that film. So it's also another uh, example of of the greed, you know, circulating this entire story. And that is a theme that, you know, is is super important because, um, Part of what gave this story so much oxygen were the people feeding into it because they saw dollar signs. And part of that is related back to the incredible success of The Exorcist, which kind of planted the seed. Oh, wow. Like, you know, maybe we've got something here. You know, this could this could really um, make a lot of money. Well, The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, Amityville. Yeah. And so, you know, that that's sort of, I think, part one thing we definitely wanted to pick apart was sort of the the influence of greed and the and the different motivations, right? That that some of the people orbiting this story had in in pushing out different versions of it. Um, but now I wanted to I wanted to get back to your other question, which which was, I guess, about about secrets, right? You were sort of asking about um the secrets and I'm trying to think of something new that I can say about that. I mean, I feel like, yeah, we we wanted to to understand the story and reveal more about, I guess, what led to it. I mean, with Christopher, you know, he was the middle son of the Lutzes. He was seven years old when he lived through the haunting in the house. And uh, he'd given some interviews, but he never sat down for like a long form in-depth interview about what happened to him in that house over those 28 days. I think that's something that, you know, is really unique to the series and kind of helps ground it in a lot of ways. And I know that one of the things that really bothered Christopher was the fact that his stepfather, George, embellished uh, elements of the story. You know, Christopher feels that something paranormal did happen to them in that house and he has his own theory as to as to why and um and he also had a long-running dispute with george lutz because as the story blew up and became so popular george really was looking at different ways of monetizing the story and embellishing it and and that really bothered christopher because he felt there's enough here that's real you know there's no need to to pepper it with bullshit as, as Christopher says. So, um, so I thought that, you know, that was a really kind of a fascinating thing to discover. And I think it, it gives Christopher an interesting kind of credibility because he's willing to kind of call out his stepfather in certain areas where, you know, he feels like it, it went 
beyond what actually happened, but he still maintains that something paranormal did happen to the family. That makes him a very interesting interview subject because he's not one of these people saying, yeah, it was all a hoax. We all made it up. No, he's saying it really happened. Uh, but then that it sort of got out of control and a whole exploitative mythology grew out of it. And that goes back to the issue of secrets because, and I'm not spoiling anything here, but we learn a lot of dark secrets about uh, George Lutz, largely through Christopher. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and that was the thing. I mean, I was I was fascinated by George Lutz. Certainly, George and Kathy are huge characters in the series, although they have both passed away. So we were only able to access them through the archival interviews that they'd given and through, of course, people who, who had known them at the time. And with George, you know, there was really not a lot about his personal backstory uh, you know, from when he was a child or his young adulthood when he served in the military during the Vietnam War. And um, that was definitely a focus for us in trying to research whatever we could to understand more about um, about his past and about who he was, because he basically met Kathy. And within just a couple of months of of knowing her, they got married and then they moved into the house. And so there's a very short window, you know, with George and Kathy and the kids being together prior to the house. It's not like they were this, you know, fam blended family for multiple years. It was really like in the course of less than a year that they kind of all moved in together. You know, Kathy and George got married and then they moved into the Amityville house like very shortly thereafter. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, again, you know, in some ways, your docuseries uh, raises more questions than answers, or it opens up new questions, even. Like, we find out that George Letts is a Marine. Well, what happened when he was in Vietnam, you know, and why didn't he talk about it that much? Uh, you know, on one hand, he is telling media, uh, you know, I had no interest in the occult, but he's also talking to Miriam and Buckley, uh, right? So, you sort of tease out all these different threads and you sort of let the viewer ponder things. Even the, I want to talk more about this, uh, the sort of mob question when it comes to uh, the DeFeo murders. There's some some threads that you mentioned there, but you don't necessarily give like the definitive answer. Uh, and I think that's the, the way you should have done it because I, I think the, the series is very powerful in the way it allows us to ponder uh, you know, what is the truth? Uh, because, you know, we may never truly know. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the DeFeo murders and just the, uh, I guess there's so many conspiracy theories around it at this point. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things that fascinated me was the the mafia connections that the DeFeo family purportedly had. And, um, and they did have mafia connections. I mean, there's, there's no question of that uh on both sides of the family and um you know part i i really pursued that and wanted to have that be actually a, a larger part in the series but people still won't talk about those connections uh openly on camera and on the record but uh we know that the defeos uh so um ronnie's grandfather uh rocco defeo was the brother of Pete DeFeo, who was uh, the top capo in the Genovese crime family. 
um, very powerful. He ran the docks in New York, the, the Carpenters Union. Um, and, you know, this is established in in law enforcement wiretaps and um, and surveillance that had been done at the time. Um, so, uh, there's no question about, you know, Pete DeFeo being, uh, very, uh, mom connected to the Genovese, which was the largest and most powerful crime family at the time. And we're talking about an era in the early seventies where the mafia, uh, operated with impunity in, in New York city. I mean, the, the federal government was not prosecuting. This was pre- uh, Rico, you know, free racketeering cases. And so basically it was just local law enforcement and there was a lot of corruption at the time. So a lot of, of cops, you know, were on, on the take. And even if they did make a case against a mobster, um, it wouldn't stick, you know, because of the power that the mafia had, or it would just be for something minor, a gambling offense or something, and they'd be out relatively quickly. So, you know, that's that's part of what really fascinated me. You know, Pete DeFeo was was part of the old guard that didn't want to talk about their business, you know, uh, versus Joe Colombo, which was sort of, you know, the precursor to John Gotti, the flashy new generation mobsters that were much more in the public eye. The old guard, any attention they shied away from, they wanted to do their their crimes, you know, out of. Uh, the scrutiny or spotlight of 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 the media um so on the and then on louise defeo on her side uh her father michael Burganti, owned this buick dealership and um it was thought that that he had connections to the colombo crime family and we do get into a little bit the connection to the colombo crime family um in the show but basically, so both sides, you have the Colombos and the Genovese and, and uh, you know, definitely allegations that that Ronnie's father, Ron Sr., was also engaged in some kind of, you know, mob activity. And so th- there's a culture of violence, you know, around that family. And I, I wanted that to be something that we we feel in the show you know i never thought that the defeos were a mob hit um it's possible you know people dismiss that out of hand like oh the mob would never kill kids that's not true i mean that's not their normal operating procedure but it's not like it couldn't have happened that way there are instances where things go wrong you know it just things spiral out of control it's, it doesn't look like a classic mob hit for sure, but it doesn't mean that there couldn't have been a role there. But that wasn't really the angle that I was looking at it from, you know, whether it was a mob hit or not. You know, that's that's a, that's one question. But there's no question that the DeFeos had mafia swirling around them. And the idea that that could have influenced Ronnie and influenced the dysfunction within that family, I felt was really important to try to include in the series. Do you think another reason that you included the sort of mob angle was, you know, right after the murders happen and you illustrate this really well, everyone in the town is like completely, you know, flabbergasted by this. I mean, that's an understatement. I mean, they're horrified by it, but they're also just like, what is going on? How could this happen? 
how could he murder his whole family? Uh, they, they don't even initially know that it's uh, DeFeo Jr. You know, they're thinking, well, you know, what, what happened? And you have the mothers uh, trying to talk to the policemen and they're gathering at the church, uh, you know, uh, and saying, oh, uh, you know, obviously, and just gossip and rumors start, obviously it was mob or, you know, and that whole fallout and, and the rumors that start, whether it was mob related or not, it sort of gives you an insight into how mythologies build up in our modern culture. Uh, was that intentional on your part, wanting to sort of illustrate how rumors and gossip uh, sort of can snowball into a bigger mythology? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it started right away. Uh, you know, of course, people trying to make sense of this crime and them have Having these mafia connections were one way that people could sort of maybe try to make sense of it. Um, at the same time, you know, I think that um, it's um, the fact that the there were these whispers, you know, right out of the gate. I mean, I, I found it fascinating that people were not terrified in the town. <laughs> you know, it's like you have a... a, a a family mass murdered and you didn't get the sense from that archival footage that people were like double locking their doors at night like it felt very oh well but that was the defense they're the mob family like it wasn't like there was some mass murderer on the loose in their community and so i thought that was kind of telling in a weird way also uh because it was such a a brutal crime in this you know, kind of affluent suburban community. And it's almost and, like the people in the town come off in, in some ways as uh, initially being morbidly fascinated. Yes, yes. And I mean, and there was a fascination, you know, Walter Cronkite did two stories about this. I mean, again, this was in this in this period where there had been the Manson murders, you know, there had been a couple of things, but but the murder of a whole family like this was definitely um way way out of the ordinary and so it was front page news for sure i was also interested i i don't want to go too much back to amityville to the possession but you have an interview with diane franklin and uh i think she speaks uh if not necessarily like super highly of the film i think she takes it sort of seriously as a movie uh why did you want to include franklin in that episode and sort of her thoughts on Amityville too, because like, like I said, I think it's an interesting movie. I think it is sort of a, it is an exploitation movie, uh, but also in a lot of ways it deals with serious issues. I think the director of it, uh, who was pretty devout Italian Catholic filmmaker, I think he tried to take it seriously and took it into a really sort of dark direction. But it's on one hand, a movie that I, I think deals with very interesting subjects. On the other hand, it's also a cash in. So it, it seems like on one hand you could take it seriously, but on the other, you know that it's sort of a, an exploitation feature. So can you talk about the sort of tension that exists when talking not just about Amityville to the possession, but just the Amityville phenomena in general? Because I, I think there's elements that you really want to take seriously, but at the same time, you're always left with this question of how is greed potentially driving all of this? Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, I mean, I, it, it was really important to me that that we incorporate how the story morphed into these strange cinematic interpretations of it. And I think 
you know, Diane Franklin it really encapsulates that. I mean, I don't think we get into this actually in the series, but she plays Dawn DeFeo, the the sister of Ronnie DeFeo in Amityville to the Possession. And 40 years later, she played Louise DeFeo in an independent film that was done just a couple of years ago. So she's actually played two different members of the DeFeo family um, which is which is pretty wild. And I, I felt like her connection to the story really um, was the perfect encapsulation of this bizarro universe that is now exists as the Amityverse. And it's not just that she played Dawn DeFeo, but that she has a kind of cult status with the fandom. You know, she goes to horror conventions and makes appearances and and signs posters and um and it's just it's a very uh strange connection that she has um you know she she says she purposefully didn't really research anything about Dawn DeFeo or the the real DeFeo victims before she did the film she wanted to have a kind of separation um but yeah I mean I, I for me it was like and, and, you know, part of the fourth episode, we also kind of start to uh, break down the fourth wall a little bit, you know, within the show. And the idea there, too, is to try to sort of get at this quality of the story just spinning out of control in every direction and sort of breaking further and further away from the truth. So I think that um, her relationship to the Amityverse is, is certainly one one way of illustrating that. Could you speak a little bit to uh, one of your interview subjects is a fellow by the name of, um, I don't want to mispronounce his name, but I think it's Tommy Marr. Tommy Marr, yep. Could you talk about him? Because I was unfamiliar with him until watching this, but he was a friend of uh, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. And I, I think he's deeply affected by, uh, you know, the murders. And uh, he refuses to believe it was just Ronnie DeFeo Jr., but could you talk about interviewing him? And uh, it sounds like this was one of the first times he really opened up uh, about his thoughts on all of this. Yeah, it was the very first time that he had sat for an interview, and he grew up in Amityville. He still lives there now, so he is, you know, hardcore Amityville, Long Island. And, um, you know, he met Ronnie when they were in middle school together, and so, you know, knew him in those sort of early years and and then um, and actually saw Ronnie on the day that the bodies were discovered. And, um, yeah, I think that it's really haunted him. I mean, you talked about the way the story haunts in different ways. And I think Tommy also encapsulates like how he himself has been haunted by this story, both as a resident of Amityville and as this former friend of Ronnie DeFeo, who just can't can't make sense of the fact that Ronnie would do something so heinous. And um, he was actually the very first interview that we shot for the series. Um, so Tommy has just a he's a he's a unique character. He's a rock and roller. So he has like a real kind of presence. He comes across almost like as some sort of like Long Island modern day pirate or something like that. You know, he has this very kind of gruff 
way of expressing himself that's very direct and feels very genuine. And um, and I think he brings a lot to the show um, because, again, uh, you know, that's one of the voices that has has never been heard prior. I was going to say you also interview uh, one of DeFeo Jr. cellmates. And although you don't interview him, uh, you do have a lot of interview footage of Ron DeFeo Jr. So there's so much that, that went into this docuseries. How did you go about? Uh, arranging all these interviews and tracking these people down and also getting footage of, you know, say George Lutz or Ronnie DeFeo Jr. Uh, what was, what's like the behind the scenes of how do you really bring this all together? Yeah. Well, so, so on the interview side, we have one of our executive producers, Blaine Duncan is a paranormal investigator who has been obsessed with Amityville for 20 years. So, you know, he spent, a lot of time building up trust and relationships and finding people who had never been asked even to to be interviewed, such as Carol Severo, who's featured in episode one. She was a, a close family friend of the Lutzes, and uh, no one had ever asked to interview her before, but she was there the first time that they toured the house. You know, she was with them right after they fled the house. She moved out to California and was with them when the movie was being shot. So, I mean, again, this is an incredible kind of, you know, first source on on several aspects of this um, story. And um, and Blaine was you know able to find her and then to convince uh, her and Christopher and Tommy, you know, to participate in this project because you know, we were all trying to make something different and something that would respect what they had to say. So we had the, you know, incredible fortune of having Blaine bring all of his expertise on the topic, as well as these deep relationships that he built over two decades. And then on the archive front, I mean, we had an archival team that gathered, I think it was like 7,500 assets. I mean, you know, the, the Lutzes went on a world tour for both the book and the movie. So, you know, they were in Japan, they were in Korea, they were all through Europe, they were in Australia. And, um, and it's, you know, it's very challenging to track down some of these, some of these assets of, you know, photos, um, interview footage, and, you know, it took many months of research, but that's certainly part of one of the things I think we're most proud of is that because this series was made at a more premium level, we were also able to afford to license a lot of these crucial archival materials. A lot of the other projects that have been made have been a little bit more homespun and you, you're not able to, you know, have the reach to both research and then pay for the access to have these assets all together in one place. And, you know, that's basically what we tried to root the whole series in was just as many, you know, legitimate, um, you know, sources as we could find and have the people who um, were giving those interviews, the main people who experienced these events you know, basically giving them the opportunity to to speak through those interviews. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a Herculean um, effort. I think something like twenty five hundred assets uh, made it into the show. You know, photos, you know, audio clips, and footage. 
And with Ronnie DeFeo, you know, we have outtakes from a British documentary um, that was only 30 minutes long and used a very short piece of this prison interview that they did with Ronnie. So a lot of what you're seeing of, of the Ronnie material has never been seen before. And um, and then through um, the daughter of Hans Holzer, Alexandra Holzer, we were also able to get access to a audio interview that Hans did with Ronnie behind bars that has never been released before. So we definitely tried to uncover as, as much new material as we could. One thing that's interesting to me, since you mentioned Carol, the family friend of the Lutz's, is, is uh, I, I'll be honest, I, I'm not a big believer in hauntings. I'm very, I'm very much on the skeptical side of things. But you listen to someone like Carol, and you know, you think, oh, this this sounds like an honest woman. She's reflecting things as she remembers them. She seems to speak in very warm, sincere tones about the Lutz family. But then you'll cut to another interview uh, with someone else like Christopher saying different things about, you know, say, George Letts. So one of the most interesting aspects of the docuseries for me is you have all these conflicting voices and it's hard to tell, like, oh, are are they just saying this because, you know, it it doesn't seem like they're driven necessarily by greed, like Carol comes off as, uh, you know, a very genuine person. So what's interesting to me is the ways in which all the interview subjects uh, seem to come off as uh, very sincere, uh, with maybe the exception of, you know, I, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. comes off as, uh, you know, shifty to me. But, uh, you know, aside from that, everyone comes off as very sincere in what they're saying. And you're sort of left again with more questions than answers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um... You know, that's one of the strange things about this story is that it seems to keep like sucking people back in. So if they if they touched it in some way in the past, it just it sort of won't let them alone. And I mean, I think Christopher is the is the key example of this. I mean, he tried to sort of get away from the story for a while and then he's tried to sort of take the narrative back and sort of make it his own again. And there's this tension, this push and pull, because there's apparently this just endless fascination with the story. There's always an audience out there. And, you know, I think it just um, I think it does mess with people. But then I I think for some of our interview subjects who have never spoken before, like Carol or like Tommy, I think they also saw this as, you know, a really important opportunity to share what they had to say, you know, I mean, they're, they're older in years, you know, they don't know what other projects might be made about this. And this seemed, I think, to be um, a legitimate, you know, enterprise looking at the story. And so we were very fortunate that we could convince them to participate. And, um, and yeah, I don't, you know, I think so much time has passed that it's not like, Carol or Tommy are, are trying to peddle some kind of side book or something like that. You know, their motivation really did seem genuine in terms of just sharing what they knew and what happened at the time. And um, and yeah, and just wanting to kind of add to the record in that way. There's a really interesting scene, and I'm not really spoiling much here, but uh, there's an interesting scene with uh, Christopher Lutz where 
you know, he's talking about going back to school after the Amityville horror movie has, you know, become a huge uh, success at the box office. And, you know, kids are saying to him, wait, you're that Christopher Lutz. And then they're like, well, what, what's the story, Christopher? And he tells them the story and they say to him, that's not in the movie. You're lying. I think that's a very interesting scene. And you, I think there's a, a sort of element of trauma that Christopher has when he talks about that. Uh, but but what what did you feel when watching back and, and uh, looking at the docuseries about that scene in particular? Because I think it's a really key moment in the series. Yeah. Well, I think that it, it really speaks to this media moment that was happening in the late seventies, which, you know, we're still sort of living in to some extent of, of uh, the, the media narrative kind of trumping the, the true experience, you know? And I think like that, you know, that's what, what uh, Christopher was experiencing in such a personal way that um, his story that he was, you know, being played by another kid in a movie. And now the people that he met, you know, thought that the movie told the truth and that he was a liar. And I think it just speaks to how, how warped things can get in our media landscape and the nature of truth and and who believes what. And obviously, you know, part of what I, I loved about this series is is all the resonance that it has with our current moment, because I think there are a lot of things. I was going to say, I was going to ask about how do you think your series fits into what's been called like the post-truth era and this discussions about post-truth and fake news, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's one of the things that I think will resonate with people is this um, questioning of the truth. Now, in the 70s, I think there's still this question of hoax or or not a hoax, right, which we're so beyond now. I mean, we're living in a post hoax existence at this point. But I think that the the mistrust of, of institutions, of course, is huge right now. And I think that there's, you know, a, a real parallel there. And then this this sense of kind of mass anxiety. I mean, I think like coming out of COVID, people having been locked down at home, you know, trapped with their families and and, you know, scared of an invisible killer, you know, this sort of paranoia and and real fear that people have been going through and of course the hyper polarized political climate and people believing in in all sorts of conspiracy theories it is very similar in a lot of ways to the 70s because you know you had mass institutional distrust in the 70s after things like watergate so we are sort of living in a parallel moment to the 70s in some uh in some ways i suppose yeah, I think I think that's right. And that's part of why I, I felt like a reexamination of Amityville in this moment could really touch a nerve with viewers because you can kind of draw those. And I mean, you know, the other thing that Amityville is about is real estate, which is, you know, never ending story in, in American history. And um, and, you know, that's, I think, also something that's very much on people's minds today. The nature of home. Can you elaborate more on what you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, there's, of course, the um, 
the constant uh, tension around the actual housing market, right? So you have the American dream of owning a home and all of the political uh, constructs that have been built to support that, such as home mortgages. And obviously we're living in a moment where the rates are skyrocketing and the dream of home ownership is looking further and further away for so many Americans. And yeah, so- I, I was going to say in an age where it's harder and harder to afford a home, that joke that Eddie Murphy makes about, you know, well, why don't you just get out of the damn house that the ghosts are telling you to leave? It makes less sense when you think about, well, you know, I, it's hard to get a home, man. If I'm getting a home, ghosts ain't driving me out, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, I think, and the Lutzes uh, also encapsulated that, like they, they saw this, this basically mansion of a house, you know, beautiful house with with a pool that had a boathouse in the back. And, you know, that was a very aspirational move for them. They were in a very modest middle class house on Long Island. And then they moved into the Amityville house, which was a beautiful house on a beautiful street uh, in in Long Island, one of the most beautiful blocks. And um, so, you know, I think that's something that's very relatable as, as well as just going back to the kind of history of the haunted house movie, which John Carpenter talks about in episode four, you know, home is supposed to be a place of safety and stability right it's supposed to be a place of refuge but in this case becomes a the site of terror you know exactly and you know the house itself is a character in amityville and and it was very important that we make the house a character in the show and it has you know it's it's actually um becomes this kind of this dark force that's attacking um, the Lutz family. So it's obviously the complete reverse of, of a refuge. It's actually a terror. Yeah, it's always struck me when I watch, you know, the movies or just look at pictures of the house. You look at those two windows in, in the uh, attic and they do look like, the you know, and this is probably because of how we associate it now with horror and ghosts and whatnot, but they almost come to represent like eyes looking out at you you know what i mean yes and that you know that original poster i think is is really the most iconic thing about the movie's release it's it's the side of the house with those windows glowing like eyes and of course the gambrel roof that kind of barn roof you know that gives it kind of the shape of like a head and um yeah i think that's definitely something that has haunted people for for decades at this point. Since you mentioned John Carpenter, uh, why did you feel it was important to include uh, a figure like John Carpenter in the conversation and also other figures like uh, the cultural and occult historian? Although when I say occult historian, I mean more, he's a sort of social historian of occult movements. I'm talking about Eric Davis, who's been on my show before. Why did you feel that it was important to include these sort of cultural scholars and, you know, filmmakers like uh, John Carpenter in particular. Yeah, well, I guess I'll talk about Eric Davis first. I mean, Eric um, is, you know, so unique in his expertise around the occult. And he wrote an incredible book about the weirdness of the 70s. 
And, you know, that was just something that was super important for me to incorporate in the series so that we could understand the larger dark forces sort of working underneath the surface. I mean, I, I really wanted the series to feel immersive and and not have it be an endless line of, of talking heads or some kind of historical piece. You know, so we, we basically try to deploy our cultural commentators in a, in a in a very targeted manner and so you don't actually hear from Eric Davis until you know really the the last third of episode 1 but i think by that point i think you're kind of ready you know to kind of understand some of the landscape and it allows us the opportunity to zoom out a little bit from the nitty gritty of the Amityville story to understand kind of the wider context. And I think Eric Davis, you know, did an incredible job uh, bringing that to life. Um, with John Carpenter, I mean, you know, it was an incredible opportunity to get to interview him. Halloween comes out in 1978, you know, and then obviously Amityville is 1979. Very different movies, but both dealing with a kind of suburban gothic horror and both i mean i was gonna say halloween if you really watch that original movie right down to the ending where you know like they can't find michael myers body the shape and he's just sort of you hear the breathing and you see the point of view shot it i mean halloween is basically a campfire ghost story in the mm -hmm. same way that something like amityville is yeah yeah, and I think um, both are instrumental in launching kind of the modern horror movement. You know, I mean, I think that they really, there's something about the way that both of them borrow from what came before them, but then spin it into a new direction that's very that was very fresh and unique in 78 and 79. And then I think they just, you know, spawned a whole new generation of, of horror filmmakers and horror films. Um, so, you know, it was an incredible opportunity to interview him. I mean, John Carpenter is, is not a huge fan of the Amityville horror, which has also made it an interesting interview because it's he broke not like my heart when he when when he started talking about Amityville, too. Just saying, <laughs> what? Why are you asking me about this one? <laughs> yeah. And um, but, you know, I think it's, you know, it, it definitely added um, a different kind of weight to just understanding the the history of horror and how Amityville kind of fits into the haunted house, you know, uh, kind of history that goes back to the very beginning of cinema. Since you mentioned the real estate thing, I forgot to ask about this earlier, but, you know, it, it's interesting in a way that house is still haunted. It is haunted by people who will constantly visit it. And as we know, the people who bought the house after the Lutzes, yeah, they did not have a good time with that house. And it wasn't because of ghosts. It was because of uh, tourists and uh, thrill seekers. So I, I don't know. Do you know anything about, does anyone live in that house now? Uh, what has happened with the real estate situation with that house? Because I'm assuming for a time, a lot of people just wouldn't want to live there because of all the baggage that comes with it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it remains a very challenging place to live. Uh, and, you know, from speaking to neighbors of the family that currently lives there, 
it's clear that they are inundated on a regular basis with visitors, you know, even to this day. It reminds mm-hmm. me a bit of the, um, you know, the, the Sharon Tate house is people mm-hmm. will still to this day, you know, try to go to that house, like weird, you know, people that are obsessed with like the, the Manson case, you know, it's just, yeah. And Amityville is the same way. Yeah. And Amityville also has that lore of the red room under the stairs, you know, so there are these kind of hidden elements of the house. So, you know, people want to go inside, they want to tour it, they knock on the door, they look through the windows. Um, So, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's still very much haunted by this story. I mean, I, I kind of wanted to get to a place by the end of the series where we actually even move beyond the physical house. You know, I, I think Amityville now is a construct that goes beyond any physical location. It's it's become, you know, it's been expressed by the fandom in so many different ways. And it's now- I mean, hell, we have a movie that, called Amityville in space. It has gone well beyond the house at this point. So, yeah. So I think like as a concept, it's it's transcended the original house. At the same time, I think people will continue to drive by there. And certainly so many of the Long Islanders that we interviewed said that even to this day, as teenagers, you know, people will drive by and get scared, you know, driving by the house. And um, so I, I don't know, I guess that's that's part of what makes it scarier is that there is a physical location you know where those murders happened and then the hauntings a place that you can actually go and visit the very last thing i wanted to touch upon was when we're talking about this fandom and the social phenomena of amityville i mean i i think there's a positive end of it right like we narrativize things and we create mythologies uh in order to understand the world around us and maybe we can gain insight from that and i think that's a lot of what your movie is trying to do. I think on the other hand, you also show that there is this dark side to the fandom, like the, you know, obsessiveness of people, you know, hectoring uh, the new homeowners, right? Um, or even, you know, some of the tropes that are involved in the whole Amityville horror phenomena, such as the Indian burial grounds, right? Uh, on one hand, I've always interpreted the Indian burial ground element to be like, oh, you know, this is about our, like, inability and our guilt over... Um, you know, settler colonialism. Uh, on the other hand, it also feeds into like, oh, scary Native Americans. So can you talk about the the positive and negative of the Amityville fandom and things like the Indian burial ground trope, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that the, the human toll of the story was something that we very much wanted to include and, and is a big part of episode four is really trying to understand how this story uh, affected different people and different groups of people. And, you know, one uh, example of that is Don DeFeo, um, who was really sort of re-victimized in a number of ways. You know, she was, of course, a murder victim. And then her brother, uh, Ronnie DeFeo, um, you know, years later tried to suggest that maybe Dawn actually had something to do with the murders. And then, of course, um, in Hans Holzer's book and in The Possession, there's also this idea that there was incest between them. So, you know, you see the ways in which there are very dark 
consequences of kind of taking um, a real person's life and and twisting them in all these different directions. Um, so we we wanted to really deal with that head on, and and it was also very important to me that we engage the Indian burial ground trope in a very uh, clear-eyed way, which we also do in episode four. And we had um, the writer Shay Vassar, who wrote uh, a column specifically about the history of the Indian burial ground trope. Um, we interview Shay and talk about the positives and negatives of that um, portrayal and, and what that could mean, you know, culturally. Um, and I think it definitely gets close to what you suggest. You know, I mean, in certain certain times that it pops up, it does seem connected to some kind of almost acknowledgement of guilt or acknowledgement of the the theft of land from native peoples um but it doesn't quite go there and then there's also of course trading on this this other othering um and you know i mean shay talks about well well why can't just it be a, a regular burial ground like is that why is that not creepy enough to just have a house over you know over any old cemetery like what is it about you know a native american burial ground that somehow makes it even creepier and, you know, I think that obviously goes back to um, people just fearing what they don't know. And and there is, you know, certainly a negative consequence to that, um, that we wanted to engage in the series. So in conclusion here, why is the Amityville horror a phenomenon that has outlasted, you know, George and Kathy Lutz? It's outlasted the DeFeo family. I mean, as we said at the beginning, it's almost become uh, like an in-joke at this point to do, hey, let's make Amityville vibrator. Let's make Amityville cop. Uh, in a way, um, it's become this like fun pop culture phenomena in the same way that things like, say, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu mythos has become its own phenomena. You know, uh, we went from having you know, Cthulhu is this creature that's supposed to terrify us in the stories of Lovecraft to now we have like plush dolls. Uh, now we have, you know, people that build Amityville gingerbread houses. So how did we get here? Uh, and, and what do you think the significance of Amityville is to popular culture and the well, stories we tell ourselves about the world we live in? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... Amityville is is a sort of microcosm of the idea that there's you know that there's no new stories. You know? I mean, it's kind of like reinventing you know the the same um, story over and over again. And I think what's special about it was this kind of strange alchemy of the mass murder tragedy combined with this paranormal haunting experience. And somehow the combination of those elements just opens up this Pandora's box of possibilities for how to read those events and, and how to try to understand them. And I think all the different iterations of the story, I'm sure, have, you know, have have something to do with trying to work out other ideas, feelings, emotions that you know are have moved beyond the story itself you know and so i think it's just like some kind of funhouse mirror at this point you know you can look into it and and get back um whatever you like 
<laughs> I don't know how to explain it any more than that. Do you but, think we um, need stories like the Amityville Horror? Like, I, I know we've talked about how there's a lot of greed that goes into this broader story of the phenomena. There's, you know, a dark side to all of this. But do you think we also need stories like the one the Lutz is told in a weird way, whether it's true or not? Uh, I mean, I think that we can't avoid them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if we need them. But I mean, I think that they're just going to be a part of, of the tapestry of our lives because we're constantly trying to understand other people's experience and trying to parse whether what people are saying is true or not or what people's true motivations are. And I think that this is just another vehicle for 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 looking at that. Yeah, we may, we may not need ghost stories, but uh, they'll always be with us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So, anything else you want to say uh, that maybe we didn't go over, or what do you hope uh, my listeners get out of this conversation? Also, what do you hope people get out of it uh, when they watch the docu series on MGM Plus? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I'm proud of the fact that we were able to give each episode kind of its own lens, its own flavor. So I hope that audiences will enjoy that and kind of um, and go into it knowing that it will have these different shades to it. You know, we're not leaning all the way into just horror or just paranormal or just true crime. This is like one of those stories that kind of blends all these different genres together and also really looks at the 70s and and why um, these events uh, were able to come together to to kind of give rise to the Amityville horror phenomenon. And so I hope people will take away from it, again, some of that, they'll feel some of that resonance with our current moment, because I think think it's in there and... um, No, it's definitely there. I mean, even when you, I mean, you're, I did not expect this docuseries to get into Vietnam and even, you even managed to tie in biker culture. So. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest challenge I think with this project is people hearing about it and giving an eye roll and saying, oh my God, another project about the Amityville horror. So, you know, I mean, I think what I, what I hope is that people will, We'll give it a chance because I think that um, we've done something different with this material. And um, and I think it's a it's a pretty fun four episode ride. Last thing. What for you is the most horrifying aspect of the Amityville horror? Not 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 the story the Lutz is told even necessarily, but I mean, the whole phenomena of Amityville. What do you think the most frightening aspect of it is? Hmm. That's tough, but I mean, you know, I, I, I can't really get away from the DeFeo murders themselves as being the, the darkest, the true darkest element of this story, you know, and we don't know exactly what happened that night, but having six members of the same family and all those children, you know, shot in that manner is is something that is really difficult, you know, as as a father um to to get your head around and it's it's just it'll it'll be shocking and it should be shocking and we should never get um get complacent about that kind of violence yeah for me it's it's a combination of that but i i, I also what i what i also find terrifying is just the 
I mean, to me, it's it almost becomes depraved at a certain point how much profiteering there was. And that mm-hmm. in itself is sort of its own horror story. And I think you're really the only one to have covered this aspect of it. You know, the, the horror of, you know, just crass, exploitative profiteering on tragedy. Yes, yes. No, that's true. That was something that um, really jumped out as as we dug into the story and looked at all the layers and also that's long life over all these many decades and I mean, from the very beginning with with Ronnie DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber, before he was even sentenced, William Weber was trying to negotiate for Ronnie's life rights so he could write a book. So, you know, I think you're seeing like that that very kind of, um, you know, modern sort of contemporary profiteering um, off of true stories, really the, the beginnings of that um, in Amityville. Well, I was going to I was just going to say in closing with that, and I want to thank you for staying overtime with me. You know, I, I realize, you know, obviously you want people to see this docuseries. Obviously, you know, you know, MGM Plus wants to see it. But I, I do think that it's important that you you took an approach that, yes, this is a, a commercial sort of docuseries, but also it's it's trying to sort of maybe right some wrongs in the sense of, I don't feel that this was just some crass exploitation piece. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, well, thanks, JG. That's that's really nice to hear you say. And it was a strange combination of factors. You know, at the very end of George Lutz's life, he was locked in a lawsuit with MGM. So it's a strange kind of uh, circle that we've drawn to now be making this series about um about this story and to have it come out now on mgm plus so um appreciate you sharing your take on it and and having me on and how can my listeners uh keep up with your work and watch the docuseries um well for you know for mgm plus there is a uh a free trial if you don't have that streaming service you can get it through Amazon Prime Video, adding adding it as a channel or through Apple TV, or just go to mgmplus.com and sign up that way. And you can check out, you know, um, the first episode, see if you like it. Um, There's a lot of good stuff on there. They've got all the Bond movies, Rocky, some deep MGM library cuts. Um, So there's, it's it's an interesting combination of stuff. Um, For me, you know, I, I don't, I'm not big on social media, so I'm not sure you can follow me, but um, but I'll be back with, with something else one of these days. Are your other documentaries um, available? I know you had one uh, that actually deals with some Native American issues, um, The Seventh yep. Fire. I don't know if you could let my listeners know about that and how they can watch your other documentaries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I directed a feature documentary called The Seventh Buyer, which was about uh, two Native American men in Minnesota who get wrapped up in uh, Native American gang culture in t- rural reservations in northern Minnesota. That came out a couple of years ago and is available to rent in pretty much any platform where you where you rent fine documentaries. Um, and I also produced a documentary about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict called Afterward, which is also um, out there and available on uh, 
on platforms. So, so you could check those out. Hey, well, thank you so much, uh, Jack Riccobono for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope everyone checks out Amityville, an origin story. I think it provides uh, a fresh uh, new take on the Amityville phenomena. And like I said, I think it uh, goes away from this direction we've gone in of, you know, sort of crass exploitation. So I really enjoyed it and I hope my listeners will check it out. Thanks, JG. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jack Riccobono and that you'll check out Amityville, an origin story on MGM+. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews, where you can get the first 200 episodes of Parallax Views exclusively. Those episodes are now only available to my Patreon supporters. I'll also be adding some new content before the end of the month, so look out for that in the next few days. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.